Welcome back to Bubble Trouble, conversations between two humans with pulses as opposed to computer-generated voices. It's the real-life double act of the independent analyst Richard Kramer, that's me, and the economist and author Will Page. And this is what we do, lay out the inconvenient truths about how business and financial markets really works. We're putting aside the deep fakes and bots of AI music where we spent quite a while doing exclusive interviews with some of the top companies, and we're moving on to something that has captivated people on both sides of the Atlantic since the autumn, which is regulatory bubbles and the new buzzword gatekeepers. What are they and what are they not? What gates do they actually keep? The European Commission drummed up an answer. The US DOJ is suing one of the largest companies in the world right now. And we've got 45 minutes with one of the best brains on the topic, Constantina Banya, a partner in top law firm, Jurity Partners. Will this new regulatory environment pierce or protect the big tech companies that are seen to be in every part of our lives? Stay tuned as we're eager to find out. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Constantino, welcome to Bubble Trouble. We're honored to have you here. Your reputation precedes you. We were highly recommended to approach you from both American regulators and British regulators. So what we'd like to do just to kick things off is give you the microphone for a moment to briefly introduce yourself and really important, tell our audience how they can follow your work and especially that fantastic blog that you've got up and running. Absolutely. So first of all, it's a pleasure to be here. Many thanks for the invitation. As you mentioned, I'm partner at Jaradam Partners. It's essentially a boutique law firm. So we're a small firm, but small but mighty in the sense that uh, we have been going against the tech giants for a while now. We have cases <laughs> against Google, against Apple. But with respect to my area of expertise, I specialize in platform regulation. So I started off as a competition lawyer, but then as the European Commission I would come up with legislative proposals every other week, I started looking at this emerging area of law, which is very interesting and has to do with the regulation of all of the services that we use on a day-to-day -day basis, Google, Facebook, Apple, and all the rest. So I started looking at this back in 2017, and I've been working on this for the past six years with great passion because now is the time to influence the shape of the law. Constantina, can you just tell us where on the range of browsers that we use, Bing, Brave, Netscape? that other one called Google Chrome. Where can we find that wonderful blog that you've got up and running? So it's called the Platform Law Blog, and we discuss developments around platform regulation almost exclusively. 
Well, I'll say this, and I've never said this before after our guests has introduced themselves. I think this is going to be a boomerang show because the more that we have these new concepts and new tools, the more often we're going to have to get you back to make sense of them all as well and keep pace with regulation. Let's start with the first question. On the eighth day, did God create regulators? No. They came from somewhere. So why don't we just go right back to the basics, to the foundations, and explain why do we have regulation and why do we have competition authorities in the first place? So that's a very good question for those members of the audience that haven't followed the discussion so closely. First of all, competition authorities have started to take a look at these matters back in 2010 when the commission opened its investigation into Google. That concerned, uh, of course, the algorithmic manipulation of Google. It was a novel practice at the time. So it kind of tested the frontiers of antitrust law, of competition law. But then we decided that competition law may not be enough to tackle all of the challenges that we're dealing with, not only because some of the practices may not be, strictly speaking, may not fit competition law, but also because competition investigations are very lengthy. And of course, some of the practices that we have seen, for example, algorithmic manipulation and self-preferencing, are not specific to Google. In fact, many other platforms engage in those same practices. However, when a competition authority adopts a decision, that decision applies only to the company under investigation. It does not address industry-wide practices. Okay. So on the eighth day, Constantina, I don't think God created regulators. I don't think God introduced antitrust authorities. They came from somewhere. Where did they come from and what is their purpose of being? Why do we have them in the first place? So we have competition authorities to regulate how the markets work when something is wrong. So when there is a market failure, for example, then the competition authority steps in to say, well, there might be something wrong here. We need to take a look at it. Of course, in addition to competition authorities, we also have regulators, including sector-specific regulators. So these are essentially authorities that take a look at whether regulations such as the general data protection regulation is complied with. And if not, then they uh, adopt an infringement decision, finding that the company acted in breach of uh, regulation and imposes fines. Fine, fine. And then before we hand over to Richard to discuss this crazy new word, the phrase does yours, Richard likes to call it gatekeepers. I always like to quote screaming Lord Such from the Monster Avian Looney Party, a hilarious political party that dominated our political landscape for years, when he said we need two competition authorities. If the idea is to uphold competition in the market, that is, we don't just have one supermarket on our high street, we have more than one. And by having more than one, they compete down on price and we pay less for our milk and our bread. How can you only have one competition authority? That is a very good question, actually. Listen, I think that we need to put things in, into context. So here in the UK, we may have the CMA, the Competition and Markets Authority. However, there are many other regulators, for example, Ofcom. In the UK, these regulators have concurrent competition powers, so they can enforce competition rules. That's specific to the UK. If we move on to the EU and use the EU as an example, the Commission can enforce competition rules, but national competition authorities, the CMA equivalents, can also enforce competition rules. So we do have so, competition for so competition authorities. So we do have competition for competition authorities, yes. All right, Constantina, you've now given us a crash course in this world of regulation. We do have competition for the competition authorities, which should bring down those fines, if the logic is correct. But now we want to make those people having dinner parties feel like they can talk eloquently about this phrase as you're called gatekeepers. So Richard, take it away on keeping that gate open or closed. 
Yeah. And Constantina, I've been following tech now for 30 years. It's about increasing returns to scale and network effects and moving fast and breaking things. Now the EU, which doesn't have any of those big tech companies of its own, is wants to step in and condition the behavior of those tech giants that have wormed their way into our everyday lives. I mean, we hear tech talked about by regulators in a way that makes it clear that they don't really understand it. So can they figure out what these tech companies really do and find a way to make it fair for consumers who largely see these companies as providing free services? Excellent question, Richard. So I think it's a bit simplistic to say that VU has been going after tech giants just because it doesn't have big tech players. I can point you to empirical research that shows the exact opposite with respect to mergers, for example, because competition authorities also examine mergers. There's no single piece of evidence that the commission was actually stricter towards American companies than it was towards European companies. In sure. fact, you may remember about a few years ago, a couple of years ago, the Siemens-Alstrom merger, which is a huge merger, was blocked. And that was a merger between two big European companies. So that would have been an excellent example of industrial policy protecting European businesses, and yet the merger was blocked. So I think we cannot be discussing protectionism here. I think we should be discussing values, which brings me to the second leg of your question, consumer welfare, privacy and data protection, and all these sorts of things. So I think that the EU has been leading, actually, with respect to regulation on those areas. And the U.S. and other big jurisdictions, big markets, have not been leading on those areas. Mm. So it's as simple as that if you really think about it. And look, let's be very clear about this. Most consumers, I think, understand that to access a range of free services, whether it's a social network or search results or free videos, that they're paying for it with some level of personal data. And I understand yeah. the Do sensitivity. They? Well, empirical research also shows that people understand there is some privacy trade-offs. And then if we go back to 2018 and the introduction of GDPR in Europe, most people, I think, saw the consent pop-ups that they had just as a nuisance and didn't really pay much attention to them. Historically, in, in market after market, People have a very favorable view of these big tech companies providing useful utilities, free email services, free search services, free videos, free social networks. And do you think the consumer is so naive as not to realize that they are, as many people constantly say, if the service is free, you're the customer? Richard, I think that consumers realize that they're giving away something to get access to the service. But I am not at all convinced that consumers realize what happens once they click that consent button. Sure. If sure. you go through the CMA study on digital platforms, you will see that in addition to what we call the privacy paradox, meaning I click agree, yet I say I care about my privacy. But in addition to that, you will see how the CMA sets out a number of problematic practices in terms of how users are nudged into clicking agree and consent. And all of these dark patterns, that's also a very sexy term these, ways, uh, these days, dark patterns in terms of how users are actually nudged or forced even to share their data. And of course, what happens behind closed doors, for example, with respect to advertising technologies, what we would call ad tech, nobody really knows what happens to our data. 
So mm. yes, in principle, consumers understand that they give away something to access a service for free, even though there's no such thing as a free lunch, I think. But they definitely don't realize what happens to their data after they click that consent button. But can I ask very quickly, is, is it not a bit of a trade-off here between I can worry about data privacy or I could worry about all the money that we're spending on Google Maps? And I have my job is to worry. So given that we're spending nothing on Google Maps and we use it all the time, I'll just worry about privacy instead. I mean, you can't please all the people all of the time. Is this just displacing the worrying? It is, but I will give you an example that concerns the recent Facebook privacy case. So essentially, Facebook was trying to convince uh, the regulators across Europe, data protection authorities, that it could rely on the performance of a contract to process personal data, to use people's personal data. And then data protection authorities came in and said, well, no, you don't need to essentially process personal data to provide digital advertising in order to provide the social network. You need a clear consent. So I'm not entirely sure as to whether a contract actually meets the criteria in these cases. So, so I know there's been a lot of discussion about the power of big tech. And, and I think, as I said the other weekend at the FT Weekend Festival, we see this in, in so many fields, big pharma, big agriculture, big oil, and so forth. But as I debated and, and tried to disabuse the notion of breaking these companies up with uh, Scott Galloway almost five years ago now, I, I referred to what George Stigler got his Nobel Prize for, which was regulatory capture theory. And I have to think that just as in the U.S., when the DOJ or the regulators think about breaking up one of these big, powerful companies, they also realize that they're an incredibly valuable national asset. They're important to national security. They're fighting the Chinese on AI. And hey, Congressman, don't you want a data center in your district? And a large and powerful company like Google that's building a headquarters in King's Cross, where we all pass our way, pass through regularly for thousands of employees and contributing to the tax base and so forth. If we think about regulatory capture theory, haven't these big companies, by virtue of the enormous political power they wield, the law firms that represent them and so forth, haven't they captured the regulators who all want them to keep investing, keep hiring people, and keep providing the services to their citizens? Well, you know what? I think we need to go back to basics and uh, think of what antitrust law is all about. So antitrust was created back in the U.S. many, many years ago to break the trust. So big companies like Standard Oil. Now, of course, there is discussion about breaking up big tech. Will this happen? I'm not so sure. In some cases, I think the case will be made. For example, the case is being made this week regarding Google. Now, whether uh, these companies have captured regulators, I think that regulators have moved very slowly, especially regulators in Europe. I'm not sure whether the intention of these regulators was to be captured by these big companies. It's just that technological developments happened so fast that regulators were, to a large extent, unable to respond to the developments. Mm. Mm. Now, I should, I should stress that this podcast will be going live in two weeks' time. If I notice that between now and then, your LinkedIn profile says Constantino Banya, Director of Antitrust at Google, I'll be yeah. sorely disappointed. <laughs> yeah, but I'll tell you, it, there was an audible gasp at the FT Weekend Festival when I said, just think about it from the ch context of China. Yeah, this because is Because China decided 
they didn't want to have a bunch of unelected billionaires dictating policy. And all of a sudden, after Jack Ma decided he was going to make some critical comments of the government around the banking regulations, they came down on him and every other internet company like a ton of bricks. And that happened in, the, in a matter of months. And yet here we are, uh, four or five years after GDPR, we're only now getting the first enforcements. We're having been through a successive waves of Margaret Versteger fining Google and other companies billions of dollars with no real change in their behavior. I guess my question is, what model, under what model might regulation be more effective if we agree that to date it's either been behind the curve or just has been ineffectual? It has been behind the curve because you mentioned the issue of fines. Fines Fines don't do anything to prevent these companies from engaging in harmful practices. It's as simple as that, no matter how high they are. And of course, the European Commission imposed uh, uh, record-breaking fines. So fines do not do as much. In fact, I think they're treated by these companies as manageable business expenses. (laughs) (laughs) It's cost of doing business. It's just the cost of doing business. However, the cost of will... pressing your shirt and paying off the European Commission. Okay, yeah. 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 We accept in advance, we'll be breaking some laws, and this will have a cost. It's as simple as that. However, uh, you mentioned that in the EU, a lot has been going on. In the UK, a lot has been going on. I think this largely reflects our values, whether we want to be dominated by these companies and the ways in which they operate. And this is why we have been regulating the area now. You mentioned, you asked me about the model. What's the perfect model or a good model to regulate these companies? And I would say I'm very optimistic about the Digital Markets Act for many reasons. I will give you just a couple of examples. One, for a non-compliance investigation to be completed under the Digital Markets Act, so the equivalent of an antitrust competition case, we don't need to wait for 10 years the investigation should be completed within 12 months. That means a lot in terms of the time scale. So that will benefit businesses if the decision is out in 12 months, but also think of the amount of uh, financial resources that a small company needs to run an investigation for a decade instead of basically supporting an investigation for 12 months. Mm. So this is how the DMA will be working. It's different. It will be very different from competition law. Hmm. It was interesting as well to see that some of the companies decided that their services don't fall under the gatekeeper rule. For example, iMessage in an Apple iPhone, which makes a distinction between messages coming from outside the Apple ecosystem and messages coming from within them. So it self-preferences or disadvantages or excludes rivals in one way or another. But they decided, you know what, we're not a gatekeeper. So how much are we allowing the foxes to, to design the hen houses that they want to be raiding regularly? That's actually a great question. And I want to make two comments. So first of all, the DMA will work in a much more intuitive manner than competition law because it relies on user thresholds. So what Apple told the commission is that Even if iMessage meets the user thresholds that the DMA sets, that the Digital Markets Act sets, this does not necessarily mean that we are a gatekeeper. And therefore, we ask you to assess whether we are a gatekeeper or not. And now the commission has until February to make a decision, to adopt a decision on this. Mm -hmm. So we will see whether the commission accepts Apple's arguments 
it's still, it, it's to be decided. The DMA will work in a much more straightforward manner than competition law, as I said. So that applies also to the user thresholds. Of course, under competition law, as a competition authority, you would need to assess whether a company is dominant. That relies on many qualitative criteria, and this is why competition investigations take so long to complete. Mm. However, that said, the DMA leaves some leeways for gatekeepers to assess those user thresholds. Why? Because the DMA has a methodology according to which a gatekeeper self-assesses whether it meets the threshold. So clearly, there is some room for maneuver on behalf of gatekeepers. Yeah, Hear no evil, see no. Constantina, you guys are debating the theory side. I want to bring it back to street level. It's all very well with this eloquent understanding of the law. But you earlier said, what do the consumers want? Let's forget what the commission wants, and what the expert lawyers like yourself and the economic agencies will be doing. What does the consumer want? They want convenience. That's what they like. And how do you deliver convenience? But you make advancements in tech. And how do you do that? Through scale. So I want convenience. I give you two examples. During the heart of lockdown, we all went to video conferencing and Google made it easier to use Zoom than to use their own Google Hangout product. I thought that was interesting. No antitrust authority enforced that. No antitrust authority would have thought of that. But because Zoom was a universal application and Google was a gatekeeper for Google Hangouts, they made the universal application easier to access and easier to use. Let's build that out for a second. There are two presenters on this podcast. One has a very flashy Galaxy phone. Another has an iPhone. I would love to FaceTime with my co-presenter of this podcast. I can't because they're not incompatible. It would be more convenient if they could. So do you not think that the lawyers and the economists just get lost down their own rabbit hole of theory and law and application and they forget about what the consumer actually wants, which is for the world to be a bit more convenient. And I don't give a shit if these companies get bigger, if they make life more convenient for me. I mean, of course we get lost in translation. However, I also think that when we discuss convenience, I don't think that convenience should be specific to the gatekeeper's ecosystem. If I want to port my data to another provider just because that provider offers a better service or just because I want to use a second provider, I should be allowed to do so. Data portability was not an option and has still been not been an option. So that's one example of where convenience kicks in and it involves players other than gatekeepers. Hmm. And we definitely want to pick and, up on that. Uh, I think we should wrap up this first half right now because we want to touch on this issue of data portability, of switching costs, and of the lock-in into these incredibly powerful ecosystems. But let's wrap up the first half with Constantina Banya. We've been talking about really the, some of the most important regulatory and legal issues of our time, how we rein in or think about regulating these giant tech companies that are in our lives every day. We'll be back to talk about some of the nuts and bolts of that in part two. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome back to Bubble Trouble, we're part two of Constantina Banya, an expert in the field of antitrust and regulating big tech, at least here in Europe, that is. And we're going to go down a rabbit hole in part two and pick on a topic which I think opens up a lot of lanes of thought. And what I thought I'd get into is what economists call switching costs. Now, you can have competition, more than one provider of a good or a service. But for that competition to work, you need to have people to be able to switch between one and another. I always remember sitting on Kentish Town Underground Station waiting on my tube and there's this big banner in front of me called U-Switch where the government was promoting the concept of switching between providers of broadband or providers of gas and electricity or just utilities, things which used to be national monopolies. Now they have competition and the government had to intervene to incentivize switching. Now, imagine this. I'm sitting at a conference and the head of Ofcom is on stage and he says, competition is working because switching ratios are increasing. Is that a fair comment, Constantino, or do I bang my head off a rubber desk here? Because if I'm switching, it's because I'm getting a crap service. Otherwise, I should be staying. So switching could be a force for good. That is, the market clearly working. We're exercising our right of competition. Or it could be really bad because we're getting these crap broadband providers and they're all making me frustrated, hence I have to move. I don't want the hassle of switching. I just want broadband to enter this house and function the internet. Explain to me switching costs and the dilemma that we face when we try and work out whether it's a good force or a bad force. Well, switching costs is exactly what you described. It's the costs uh, uh, that a consumer needs to incur when switching from one provider to another. However, I do agree with you that there is a lot of confusion about how we use the term. So, for example, in big tech, when we discuss switching costs, we don't necessarily discuss switching. We discuss whether a user can use a service in addition to a service provided by one of the big companies. So whether, for example, I can use two services to listen to music or two different services to download applications. In that case, we wouldn't be discussing switching in the strict sense of the word, but the ability of the user, but about the ability of the user to basically use more than one service. Okay. Not provided in a closed ecosystem, of course. So I think we need to distinguish between the two because yes, switching is being made difficult by gatekeepers, but what about the users that want to have access to more than one service? So let's pick on that because we have two presenters on the show. One's markets, the other is music. Let's say Richard's on Spotify and I'm on Apple Music and he wants to join Apple Music. Can he port his playlist from Spotify those years of making running playlists, those years of making personal memory playlists, all that investment in the platform, that investment in the gatekeeper even, can he bring that playlist over to Apple Music or is that potentially something that prevents him from switching? So that would depend on the company concerned, whether the company allows this sort of switching or the ability to use more than one service, one service that is not provided by the company. However, under regulation, there's no specific obligation at the moment to port data from one service to another. There is an obligation under the General Data Protection Regulation 
essentially a right for the users to port data from one service to another. However, and this is essentially where the problem lies, under the General Data Protection Regulation, data portability is only possible where technically feasible. So it's not a hardcore right or obligation. It's essentially something that we should see as a best practice kind of thing. So there's nothing stopping you, but there's nothing motivating you either. Hence, three, four years into GDPR, we still can't port playlists from one platform to another. Exactly. And there are two reasons for that. One, users do not know whether they have the right to port data from one platform to another. People just don't know about whether this is an option or not. And secondly, the technical difficulties are huge or have been huge. If you go through the uh, European Commission's report on the implementation of the General Data Protection Regulation, you will see they say data portability has not taken off. We were hoping that this is going to be a right that facilitates switching that increases competition, none of that has happened yet. However, under the Digital Markets Act, people will have more possibilities of switching because gatekeepers have a very concrete obligation to enable data portability. So let me just, and that, let, let yes. me come in on this really quickly. So what I'd love to learn here is if I go back to 2012, Spotify sent me to the Bay Area to meet a company which built the tech to do this, to move playlists from one platform to another, and they got sued out of existence. 10 years on, GDPR is in place. It is lawful that you can do this. And I apologize to our audience for going down the rabbit hole of music again, but it is the first to suffer and the first to recover so many times in this case of disruption. If I was to set up a startup company that allowed you to port playlists from one platform to another, would I get sued out of existence and would you be my defense lawyer? So listen, I think that we need to explain what the DMA will do first for small businesses, right? So let's assume that I have a startup and people want to bring their pay- playlists to me. Under the Digital Markets Act, gatekeepers will have a very specific obligation to enable users that make that request to pour data from one platform, Opt-in. from the big Opt-in. platform to the small platform. Exactly. But what is very interesting about the Digital Markets Act is that gatekeepers have very specific requirements to meet. So they cannot say, oh, the technical solution is not available yet. We cannot do this. So clearly they can do this and clearly they're under a regulatory obligation to do this. And of course, with respect to the other services that you mentioned, we need to consider copyright issues and all these sorts of things. However, I wouldn't see why a company that offers essentially the technical tools to allow, to enable data portability, why a small business would not be able to do that. Let me wait for Richard to come back to the room. Obviously, we scratch that. Richard, you take on the next question. I'll come to fines. We go to smoke signals. We'll edit this bit out. Yeah. I want to get back to this notion that the lawyers that ply their trade on both sides of the ocean in Brussels and Washington and so forth are really like Don Quixote tilting at windmills. I know giving up is an option, but I've watched now seven or eight years of this regulatory dance and nothing seems to be happening. News Corp complained vociferously to the Australian Competition Council, the ACCC, until they signed a deal with Google. So really, they just wanted the money. And isn't this just a lot of publishers who complained because, frankly, they missed the internet? 
And again, I keep going back to the fact that consumers generally have a very favorable view of these big companies that provide them with free services. And I also, back to the previous discussion, have an issue with the notion that it's my data because it's basically being stored on somebody else's servers that they pay for. So how much of the regulatory dance is really a self-perpetuating exercise by lawyers looking to constantly go after these big companies because they're juicy targets and because other big companies will pay them handsomely to complain to advantage their own businesses. I strongly disagree with the statement on publishers, right? I mean, because the media sector is so close to my heart and I will explain to you why we shouldn't see publishers as these companies that whine and try to get money out of big companies that have the financial resources. Mm -hmm. So if those big companies that we're talking about today were using their own services, own products, without relying on the content that other people produce, we would be having a very different discussion. However, I do feel that publishers had every right to complain about the whole situation regarding user aggregators. More recently, all these tools, generative AI tools, because essentially their content, the content that they produce, that they invest a lot of money in producing, is being used by these companies. I will give you just, and stolen, exactly. So this is exactly why I strongly disagree with the statement. I just want to give you a couple of examples so that you have a broader picture of what happened. So it's one of those cases where the regulator arrived too late. Example one, news aggregators and the allegations regarding scraping, right? You scrape my content, you use it on your news aggregator, I get nothing in return. Fair complaint, right? One would say. So the European Commission opened its investigation into Google in 2010. Scraping was one of the allegations. When the decision was adopted and as the investigation was progressing, somehow the allegations regarding scraping were dropped. I never understood what happened to that issue. Perhaps it was because at the same time, the European Union was trying to adopt what we call the DSM Copyright Directive, Digital Single Market Directive. And that directive establishes a right that allows newspaper publishers to get paid for the use of uh, their publications online. That's the neighboring right. What happened is the directive was adopted. It took a few years. Then, of course, member states were given a few more years to transpose the directive into national law, which is what happens with directives in EU law. And I was reading last week that some member states have not even implemented the directive yet. So how can we rely on regulation to resolve this big problem that publishers have? And with respect to generative AI, we face the exact same problem and the adoption of the AI. Time out, time out, Constantina. I, I take issue with you. So we're all disagreeing with each other, which is what economists are paid to do. So, but <laughs> honestly, the newspaper publisher industry, which we've had in this podcast many times, has been their own worst enemy over the past disruptive two decades. They would admit that. I can see that. The Financial Times, friends of the show, big supporters of the show, had both of us at their weekend festival. They didn't have an app until 2018. Mm-hmm. They didn't have an app. They were HTML5. They were working around the app store, and it's understandable why, the 30% tax, et cetera. But let's just keep in mind that these newspapers, they have lag. Now, park the history of mistake, the benefits of hindsight. In Canada, 
the only way that you can get news from Google is through piracy because Google News is blocked, as is the case with Meta. Does that not tell you who's the price maker, price taker in this debate? Absolutely. And I will tell you, clearly, business decisions were made that were not the best on behalf of news organizations. Hello. However, yeah. can you hear me? Yes, I'm underlying an exclamation mark that yeah. point. <laughs> <laughs> but I will tell you that copyright has existed for a while, and it's not a fair for companies to want to get paid for the content they produce. And I think that all of these cases have arisen for a reason, if you know what I mean. Well, let's just remind ourselves. It's the John, regulator was not able to keep up. John Lennon once said, a good artist borrows, a great artist steals. Let's remember that journalists aren't the most original people themselves. Yeah. They steal my work <laughs> for the past 15 years. Now, real quick, before we get you smoking on smoke signals and pass the Ducci on the left-hand side, I have one last burning question I want to ask you. And it's the naughty kid in the classroom question. This is how I behaved at university as I behave now. It's something that doesn't fit right with me. Google has paid the European Commission, I estimate, around about 8.7 billion euros to date. They've paid more in fines than they've paid songwriters. What? There's an exclusive calculation for our Bubble Trouble audience today. They've paid more to the European Commission in fines than they've paid for the copyrights. Now, I want to know this. This is the question of what, what happens to the money? Where does it go? What is it used for? It doesn't compensate those who are harmed by the bad actions of this large tech company. I know that. So where does the money go? Follow the money. I'm in a car park. You're deep throat. Ask my question. <laughs> so you'll be surprised to know that the money goes into the EU budget. Oh, God. The money so it's the French farmers, yeah? It's a subsidy. Uh, I would French say, farmers. hang on a second. I don't believe that's true. Tech pays for French I think farming. actually the money is sitting in an escrow account because it'll be on appeal for eight years and see if the fine actually gets upheld. Now, in one case, it was. So the money is available to French farmers or German craft beer makers or Greek fena farmers. <laughs> you never know. But I think in many other cases, money just sits there in an escrow account waiting to see how the appeal goes. And it may even sit on the balance sheet of, of one of the big tech companies as a sep in a separate account. So they're earning interest while they're waiting to see if they have to pay the money. It's a good point because one thing that we should mention, because you mentioned appeals, clearly these companies have the resources to appeal all of the decisions that are adopted against them, right? So we're talking about years and years of litigation. However, once the case is finalized and the commission decisions are upheld by the European courts, then this money would go into the EU budget. And this is why I think it's very important to distinguish between what we call public enforcement, all of these commission decisions and all of these huge fines that we read about, and what we call actions for damages, mm. private enforcement. So I suffer, from, I suffer a damage and then I go before a national court and I basically slip the commission decision and tell the judge, listen, the commission found there was a huge infringement, a very serious infringement here. Now I want money for his uh, damages for, for the harm I suffered. Yeah, but let's just be clear here. Two things. One, to stress for our audience's benefit, these fines are paid from the company to the state do not in any way compensate the consumers that were harmed by that company's yeah. actions. It's free money. Exactly. And then secondly, my sources inside Brussels, which I'm sure are inferior to yours, tell me that the European Commission has this rather large pension black hole 
and these fines go straight into filling it. And if it's not the fine itself, it's the interest earned. And thirdly, with interest rates up, finding tech companies is good business if you get the interest earned from the flow, correct? So smoking time. So listen, Let's move I, on. I think the appeal process you described is exactly this full employment program for lawyers that, that I'm so cynical about. But let's get to the final segment of our show where we ask our guests to do a little smoking with us, to, to identify the smoke signals, the O moments during all the hype and hysteria around, in this case, regulating tech. When you hear or overhear terminology or metaphors that just make you cringe, what are a couple of the things that our listeners should look out for from fulminating politicians or grandstanding regulators where you just fake palm and say, oh, we know this is not going to happen? I can tell you that there is one specific phrase that Google has been using for years <laughs> that drives it's me crazy. Evil. They don't say which that anymore. Is Competition is only one click away. This really drives <laughs> and, me and crazy. Why? Is data portability one click away? And and because and why? Because it's so trite. You know what? You cannot. If you're a company that holds ninety five percent of the market for like a good amount of years, you cannot simply say that competition is one click away. Especially if you work really hard at building a very closed mm. ecosystem. And this is now documented in a bunch of competition decisions, market studies. Is there one more you have for us? I mean, for me, it was watching Terry Bertone on stage talking about chatting with Elon Musk and having him understand the rules. Is there another one that just absolutely gets you going? Well, this is a bit geeky. I mean, as a competition nerd, one term that I still struggle to understand what it means, but apparently it was a great idea, even though it never worked in practice and it ended up into the DMA, is this notion of FRAND, fair, reasonable, yeah. and non-discriminatory terms. And this is, might be relevant to, to app developers because essentially this will oblige, require gatekeepers to grant access to app stores on fair, reasonable, and non-discriminatory terms. And the idea is great. But I just have some reservations as to how the commission will actually mm. implement that because I don't expect the commission to become a price right. regulator. And so. I've watched this for years in, in, in wireless IPR. And while you have fair, reasonable, and non-discriminatory terms for every customer, there are always different sorts of deals and barter agreements and volume discounts and the entire legal profession devoted in that area make sure that no two deals are strictly comparable. So that's, again, more of a full employment program for Constantina and Jared and Partners and all the many other law firms flying up and down the Avenue Louise in Brussels and K Street or wherever in, in Washington. I don't think we'll be finished with this big tech regulation anytime this decade or next or next. I think we spoke a long we'll way to busy. go to rewriting the code book on, on antitrust away from consumer harm into some other new and as yet unagreed upon standard. With that, I want to thank you very much, Constantina. Will has one last point he wants to make, and we'll end on that. Absolutely. Well, before I thank Constantina for her contribution, this has been a 10 out of 10 podcast, Constantina. We're going to have you back like a boomerang, make no mistake. But I just wanted to tell, Richard doesn't allow me to tell jokes anymore, but I did write an antitrust joke for you today. Hit me well. Which is, you may have seen the news, the tragic news, that we've just seen a resuscitation of the Dangerous Dogs Act. 
You may have seen the use those terrible, ghastly dogs are now banned as of four hours ago. They've been banned from Britain. So I thought, what an interesting application of the SNP test that could be. Sorry, <laughs> sorry, sorry. That's one for the antitrust lawyers. I apologize to the rest of the audience. Constantina, you've been great. And I want to stress to you, Thank hand you so on much, heart, Tom. our audience, you want to follow this subject, they need to follow your blog. So once again, let's go to those Netscape browsers, those Expedia browsers. Tell us where we can find that blog again, please. Platform Law Blog. That's the title. You can find us everywhere. Free access for anyone interested in platform regulation. And you're, you're not bidding on Platform Law Blog on Google. Well, Constantina, the, the art of economics is to make it digestible. You've done just that. This is a super important subject. It's going to run and run. And we would love to get you back to make sense of the Google decision, which is due out in the next couple of weeks as well. So thank you to Richard Kramer, my co-host. Thank you, Constantina. Yamas, we are so grateful. And you've been with Bubble Trouble and we'll be back next week. If you're new to Bubble Trouble, we hope you'll follow the show wherever you listen to your podcasts. Bubble Trouble is produced by Eric Nuzum, Jesse Baker, and Julia Natt at Magnificent Noise. You can learn more at bubbletroublepodcast.com. Until next time, for my co-host, Will Page, I'm Richard Kramer. <laughs>